practice. In verb form, it means something like training, or in another form, enacting something. So we practice our times tables, but we also practice medicine. Well, I don't. In noun form, it means the repetition of habits that we enact to grow in something. That's where times tables and music scales and push-ups and free throws come in. Since this summer, Redeemer has taken off its normal book-by-book, verse-by-verse, deep dive, and taken a deep dive into the practices that we want to uh, live into as a family, as a church family. We've called it the extraordinary life. The daily habits of our lives, all grounded in a philosophy of ministry that we've been sprinkling throughout. These practices flow from God's grace through us to the world and then back to God's throne for glory. His glory. Our good, but His glory. If you've been in real life groups, you've been talking about these more specifically. If not, I hope you've gotten some of this by osmosis. Because what we've been doing is, whether you've experienced it this way or not, um, We've been trying to do these six little mini-series about the six practices that we're, we, we've been up to and want to be up to. Worship. I just finished that one, the five C's. We talked about those things. That was a little mini-series about one of our practices. Scripture. Pastor Chris did an amazing series in the summer. It's an encounter with God's love. And my favorite one was, Scripture is an escape into reality. That was a good one, buddy. <laughs> Before, I did, before that, I did a miniseries on generosity that we give out of, um, because of God's amazing grace and the abundance he's given us, and then we give sacrificially towards his good work in the world. During Lent, in just a couple of weeks, we'll do prayer, and then between Easter and the summer, which is called Eastertide, if you will, we will explore community. But if you're counting those only five practices, because what we're right in right now is actually in something like engagement or mission or outreach or service. And that's what we've been doing. We started, if you remember, in Luke 4 about Jesus' mission to the world. And then we went through Micah 6, 8. On, and then we went through hospitality. Pastor uh, Chris is going to preach again next week. And then we're going to sum it all up with the Great Commission from Matthew 28. But today, again, I said I want to do something a little bit different. I want to talk about how outreach, mission, engagement of our neighbors is actually something that is quite mundane. And then somehow miraculous. We go about most of our days doing menial tasks monotonously. And the Holy Spirit somehow supercharges it into something eternal and meaningful and fills the earth with beauty and grace. I'm talking spreadsheets and crib sheets, whether you're changing the wipers on your car or wiping bottoms, whether you write your briefs or wash your briefs, whether you're lending money or a hand, by the way, I had fun doing this one, whether it's workouts or workmanship, vocation or avocation, work and play. These two passages speak to that, how we play and work and rest, And there is a richness in the mundane, and it's trying to give us an eternal perspective on how much it matters to God and our neighbor. So Thessalonians starts, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. 
for that indeed is what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, do this more and more and to aspire and aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and to be, be dependent on no one. And then Colossians has a very similar passage. It says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. May God bless the preaching of his word. I chose the Thessalonians passage because it starts with encouragement. And if I have any posture towards you in the history of this church and my ability to participate in its latest years, I want you to feel encouraged. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you or preach to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Winston-Salem and the world. But we urge you, brothers, do this more and more. You, Redeemer, have been taught by God to love this city and this world in the ordinary faithfulness of your lives. You have been a beacon to Christ and his grace to the world, and you've been a boon to my soul as a pastor. I wrote the um, Redeemer old-timers this week. They loved when I called them. No, I didn't tell, call them that. But it, and I, I was asking them about, like, those who've been here for a while, what is this ordinary faithfulness over the years, engagement with our city and the world, has it played out? One of the founding members wrote back almost immediately. She was at the first meeting ever at the Shoney's. She just wrote back, World Relief Good Neighbor Team, Hawthorne House, members served and even started much in our city, Crisis Control, Redeemer, uh, uh, Reed Winston-Salem, Love Out Loud, Young Life, Forsyth Jail and Prison Ministry, Salem Pregnancy Center, Solus Christus, United Way. Another one wrote back and said, years ago, a group of us started an after-school outreach at the Ledges Apartments, which involved helping with homework and other activities. And yes, the Y took it over, and we were glad to give them to make that uh, even greater for our city. Then Nan and Steve Beck started sending me pictures of all the both missions directories and local engage kind of stuff that we've done over the years. And the mullet on Steve Beck is beautiful in this thing. I just want everybody to know. There he is. He comes in for that. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Looking right. Uh, so at some point, if you get a chance, uh, talk to them about it, or I'll just send you all the little pictures of, of things. But this, there's, there's reams of work we've done. One of them says, let me get off here. Big things start small. So I quote, for that is indeed what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. And yet I urge you, do this more and more. Here's how Paul sees this more and more happening. After urging them for more and more, more, I already told you, to aspire to live, a, live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, that you may work properly before outsiders and not be dependent on them or be dependent on no one. The old um, the translation that I learned this on was, make it your ambition to live a quiet life. 
you should mind your own business and to work with your hands so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so you will not be dependent on anybody. I hope you hear the richness of what he's doing here. Make it your ambition to live a quiet life. And I hope you realize the irony that Paul is writing this. He's like a Martin Luther meets Martin Luther King figure. A rhetorical giant that got himself jailed so many times that no one would even look at his Indeed page or whatever. He says, be ambitious to live a quiet life. Same guy who started a riot in Ephesus. Not on purpose, but still started it. And he says, be dependent on no one. Same guy who says, bear one another's burdens. Seems like a contradiction, but if you're going to read great literature of any type, especially the scripture, when you see a contradiction, maybe there's something else going on. Great readers, when they see contradiction of great works, are like, what do I need to figure out is going on here? That's just being a good reader. Every brilliant thinker, writer, Christian or not, requires a sense of humility and curiosity about what they're doing. It's okay. So does Paul think we should just put our heads down, stay silent, and do manual labor, mind your own business, and make sure you don't rely on anybody else ever? In one sense, yes, we'll get to that. And in one sense, no, not at all. Jesus and Paul were wrongfully imprisoned by the state because of their actions in the world, because they would never remain silent. And we're all up in people's businesses all the time. But Paul also took a part-time job as a tent maker to make sure he wasn't a burden to the churches he served, didn't depend on anyone in that sense. Jesus never tried to burden those who hosted him. A quiet life is not an absence of activism or outrage or mercy or justice or evangelism. A quiet life is simply the mundane faithfulness amid the monotony of our days. All in response for this ever-present mercy of God that we hold to so dearly. All in light of the brokenness of this world. A quiet, mind-your-own-business, manual-labor life is not being a recluse farmhand. Nothing wrong with being a recluse farmhand. It's a hope-filled ambition for the ordinary faithfulness of love of neighbor and the work you do every single day amid a world of terrible ache and sorrow. Only a quiet life can have an activated compassion and wallet for those in Turkey and Syria. Only a quiet life can be attuned to the needs of your three-year-old. Only a quiet life can protest injustice or wash someone's feet in a way that honors Jesus, maybe on the same day, maybe at the same event. Only a quiet life can sit in the middle of all that's wrong in this world and be still and know that he is a God, a God who longs to save. It reminds me of a favorite Cornell West quote, or popular quote. I am not an optimist. I am a prisoner of hope. This ambition for a quiet life, the simple faithfulness, that's when God supercharges the the ordinary into the extraordinary. Somehow, he transforms the mundane into the miraculous and infuses our humble work into a grace-generating machine. This is how it becomes outreach, engagement, neighbor, service, mission, evangelism, anything that we would do. 
It's bearing witness to outsiders, to people who have not yet tasted and seen the kindness, grace, love, power, mercy, forgiveness of Jesus. The daily grind is a subset of evangelism. Evangelism, not in the same sense that might conjure in your mind, depending on your tradition, but in the sense that everything we do, everything we come in contact with, every person we come in contact with, every decision we make in our ordinary lives, because of the mercy of God, has a touch with the eternal. You could say it was baptized with meaning by God. It's not that we get it right every time. We don't. But somehow, in the economy of God, and then is, is the same economy of the one who rose Jesus from the crucified cross in the tomb and raised him to seated, be seated at the right hand of the Father. All of our efforts get transformed into something miraculous, even when, maybe especially when, we don't even know it. You got stories of that. Someone comes up to you and said, you said this to me one time. You're like, mm-hmm. I don't remember that. I'll take credit, but I don't know. Which brings us to the Colossians passage. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. To be honest, it's the same kind of thing. He does it a couple other places too. Work with all you've got and whatever you do, make sure you have an eye towards the Lord in it, that that's where the real work happens. The problem with this passage is that it is a different context because this is addressed to slaves. Now, when you hear about the Bible and slaves, you cannot conjure up the the transatlantic slave trade, nor the abhorrent practices of American slavery. In some cities in the ancient Near East, slaves were the only ones who could be the city managers and treasurers because they were the ones that could be trusted. In others, 70% of the population were slaves. It's close to indentured servitude, and, and again, it depends on the region and the people who were enslaving and the slaves themselves. Not quite. I am not saying it was just back then. Please do not hear me say that. There's a whole book about how Paul intends to have a slave freed in the Bible. So he wants us free. Do not get me wrong. But what it does for us to apply God's words, we simply need to say this. Yes, God is calling you to work for something greater than your job or your pleasure, and it will be in light of very unjust systems, sometimes even oppression, lies, and wickedness, which was the norm then and now. We all work in unjust systems, even if you're working for the church. There is no institution that has ever been that aligned to the kingdom of God. And so we all have to work in compromised and difficult places, even ones that would hurt us. That's what that means. So we have to have this bifocal lens to be ambitious about a quiet, everyday faithfulness and yet have a holy expectation and hope that God would do something in the middle of it. That's where he brings the genius and the power of the extra of the extraordinary, even in, especially in, really hard places. And this all points to our Lord Jesus. When you think about Jesus, sometimes we just do like the the top 10 miracle list. And is he calling? (laughs) Because I'll pick that one. Okay, Um, please don't be embarrassed by that. No worries. Um, 
we forget 30 years, right? Jesus grew up as an ordinary kid going to Shabbat school, right? Does his chores, apprentices in a few places, works in nine to five for a bunch of time. The ordinary mundane grind. That's all part of God's, of Jesus' perfect life and death. That's all part of it. It all matters. And don't be fooled even about the three years. Again, we do the top ten lists, but as heroic and amazing and miraculous and incredible as ministry was, there were plenty of times it was monotonous that he'd be sleeping. The Bible records him sleeping and eating with his friends, trying to figure out what he's going to eat that night, leaving the crowds for rest, getting away from his own friends for some quiet life. The extra and the ordinary and all that miraculous is there. Please, you know I don't want to undo that in any way. And that miraculous included his, uh, the very words of God coming to people in his preaching and teaching. But all of that is tied to the mundane of his life as well, to rescue a broken and rebellious world through that life, death, resurrection. The Father's plan to do that in his Son. Jesus didn't labor in vain for 30 years and then get his act together. And this is good for us to know, too, because there are times, much like that Good Friday felt like to all the people who are following Jesus, that our labor is in vain, that our work ends in naught. But all along, sometimes seen, often unseen, God is directing the entire universe towards his purpose to make the mundane miraculous. Now, Jesus is different. Please don't hear me. He was the only one, the unique one who could do the things that he did, to do what he came to do, which was forgive our sin, to restore us to right relationship with his Father, to launch a kingdom of peace and love, to declare God's grace to the world, to create a new humanity that would follow in his steps, and to expand his work in his work through our work by his power and grace, to bring about the plan of salvation. We can't do all that. But what does happen is that Jesus amplifies our labors. He empowers our loves. He infuses our lives with meaning. And then he just puts that extra in the ordinary in ways that we're not guaranteed to ever understand. So what? What's that mean for us, for you and your coworkers and friends and family? And what does it mean for us at Redeemer? First, a history lesson, and then I'll explain why you have a tree that was handed out to you. Every time I do a new a member's class, I tell this kind of story, so this will be a second for, for many of you. The second most amazing thing that happened in the Reformation, tenet, if you will, in my humble opinion, is, is soli deo gloria, for God's glory alone. The first, of course, was this thousand-proof shot of the gospel that buckled the knees of empires and men and women, telling of the, that grace is given to you and it's grace alone that saves you. And you can't do anything to merit it. That's, that's numero uno for sure. But the other one, God's glory alone, Solideo Gloria, it meant an absolutely revolutionary change in humanity. Christians were finally fee- freed from having to become a member of the clergy in order to really bring glory to God. You didn't have to be a professional Christian to be extraordinary. 
And you're freed from the tyranny of that you have to work your way into, into mattering for God. And now it's been given free. And then everybody can participate in this. That we don't merit anything before God, but then God makes all our work matter. You get off the hamster wheel, but into a meaningful labor, a labor of love and play. The, the classic story from this is a cobbler, shoe guy, comes up to Martin Luther and he goes, I'm in, I'm following. What must I do to be a part of, of this movement that's happening in Germany and all over Europe? And he looks at him and he goes, make a good shoe and sell it at a fair price. Glorious answer to that question. Glorious answer to that question. You can see it in Reformation art. They start painting chickens in landscapes. It doesn't have to be a Pieta or Moses crossing the sea. They start writing about shopkeepers and painting those very things, not just Bible stories and crucifixion scenes. You can hear it in the music. You can read it in the books. They were liberated to see that everything all day long could bring glory to God. Everything we do. Extraordinary, grace-infused, neighbor-loving, mundanely miraculous or miraculously mundane lives. And it's hard to see, y'all, when we live in the throes of monotony. But it doesn't make it less true. And again, Jesus envelops the ordinary in ways we'll barely ever know. But we'll worship him for it when it's revealed. All right, you can get your paper out now. This is a philosophy of ministry. You have about 14 seconds to open it. And then so that you'll listen to me, I did teach high school at some point in my, um, in my internships in college. So um, you got like 30 seconds. And then when I ask you to turn it back over, so you listen to me, and I'll refer to it in a second. And then if you're like me, you are reading the heck out of that thing right now when I was in class. So... At least if you can uh, be an oral listener, just listen. I got an email this week from an elder whose name rhymes with Josh Benoit. <laughs> I think we need to hit the POM, the philosophy of ministry, every week on this, in this series, contextualizing the topics and the whole thing. The whole thing is kind of beautiful. We can pass it on a paper form or a, for a month or so, and say something like this. <laughs> this is what your leadership believes is our philosophy of ministry, how Redeemer in particular engages ministry in the world. It's always hard to bring stuff like paper and stuff you work on outside of kind of like preaching and stuff like this, because I like to try to st stick to the Bible and what have you and apply accordingly. So I had some revelations about doing this, and then it hit me. This is just us trying to figure out what a quiet life looks like for Redeemer, what our ordinary days are going to be. We're just trying to say it out loud and make it clear. That's all it is. And so I was like, oh, I can totally do this now. And then I wrote him and said, can I, A, um, just quote you? And, he, and I said, I won't mention your name because you mentioned my name. So then, <laughs> done. This is just trying to live it all out. And the only thing I want you to do this, because we want this to be before us and, um, and, and be around us and be in our conversations, again, it's just to, to write down the quiet life, the extraordinary thing that is particular to Redeemer. Y'all, over COVID, 
in, in these last couple of very hard years for Redeemer. Your elders mourned together and prayed together along with the women's council, but they also worked together, and they worked on trying to clarify this stuff. And we've been working out of it. We brought it, of course, to the deacons and, um, and, and a retreat in, in September, and then the staff. We, we changed some things because a, a philosophy of ministry is always a living document, and now it's before you. Again, it's just a particular way where we take the eternal truths of Scripture, try to ha- understand where we and who we are, write it down, and let it guide us as we move forward. That's all it is. But there are two things I want you to read. Down in the ground. Oh, by the way, it's a black and white because um, the printer was revolting. The color printer was revolting. So the ground is the things that are the, the eternal scriptural presuppositions we have about how God lives and works in the world and who we are in that as Redeemer Presbyterian Church. And I want you to read the first one. Can you see it? God is at work. Now say it with me. God is at work. It's just what we said in the sermon today. He's working and making our work work for, to work out his plans. But he is active and alive. I want you to read the second one. That's pretty good. I even say now, and you did it. Well done, class. Um, this is the presupposition we have is that when you can't see meaning in your life or your work or the monotony of your days, when you are not convinced that even your failures don't ruin God's plan, grace changes everything. It is what we want our, it's what our history has been and we want our legacy to be. That when the toil is too much, when you know you're being a workaholic or you know you're being lazy, when you feel like your labor is in vain, when you see your days as meaningless, Jesus says, come to me, to my grace. Rest your weary head. Let me lift up your chin toward my love and power and mercy and purpose. And watch as I work. You will marvel. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Make our ordinary work extraordinary by your grace. We pray in your name. Amen.